All of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than All of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need, you satisfy me with your love, and all I have in you is more than You're more than enough. Lord, you're more than enough. Yeah. Well, good morning. Good morning. God bless you guys. Wow, it's great to see a full house. Uh, everyone is here. We have a couple of people, a couple of families probably traveling this weekend. Uh, but for the most part, everyone's here. Amen. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Good morning. Good morning. Amen. God bless you guys. God bless you. Um, we're not going to dismiss any children just yet. I want to begin uh, this time of our worship uh, with a pre- presentation of a family who has come or are coming uh, from membership here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church uh, for the last uh, several weeks, a uh, couple of months, I think. I can't remember. I've lost track. We have, uh, in this little room during the Sunday school hour, during the Bible study hour, we have had a membership class. Uh, the Stewart family has been a part of that, um, and they have asked me if they could come and present themselves for membership. And, amen. And for those who are uh, new here at Sovereign Grace, we take membership of the church very seriously. Um, and it's nothing that we are asking the Stewart family or any family to sign a legal document and... If you leave us, we will hunt you down. Nothing like that. But membership in the church is important. And I guess when we we talked about this, we looked through scripture uh, there and scripture is very clear. There is a, a precedent in the scriptures of commitment to one another, commitment to the body of Christ, even an authority structure and things like that. So membership in the church is important. And we, the reason we emphasize that is because in recent decades, membership of churches has been in, or the emphasis on membership has been in a decline, almost to the point of, I don't need to join a church. I'll just come and go when I please. Y'all agree? So this is why here at Sovereign Grace, we take membership seriously. Um, and the Stewart family has come. They, you've been with us now since when? Last September or something like that? That's what I was September. And... You are, you are a family who's very much like many of the families here. It was around August, September-ish. We started seeing an influx of new families to this church. Uh, many of you in this room are in that boat. And so we, we thank you guys for loving this church enough to stick around. Is that a good way to put it? Uh, uh, we feel blessed to be here. We, yeah. We've been, yeah. ever since we moved to this area, we've been praying that the Lord was would uh, lead us to a like-minded body of believers and uh it's been from the first time we ever came it's been a blessing to us. amen and i remember we ron and i came to have dinner with you guys what when was that, that was almost december wasn't it november december yeah, yeah, right at the first and uh they have a lovely home in spencer if you ever get a chance to get down that way to visit with them if they invite you it's a beautiful beautiful place yeah <laughs> Maybe, maybe we'll have like a church event down there, down in Spencer, but beautiful home and, and beautiful family. I mean, your, your kids are just perfect, believe it or not. Uh, no. I would go that way. <laughs> anyway. They have been perfect parents. Anyway. But I'm going to ask you, is there anything that you'd like to share with the church, how you want to present yourself or what you'd like to say about the church and why you're coming to join? Well, like I said, just um, we've been looking for a like-minded body of believers, uh, a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. Uh, the fellowship has been amazing. Yeah. Um, the, the love for, for God that we see in this body is uh, 
and we're just glad to be a part of it. Amen. Well, we're glad to have you. Do you have anything to add, April? Amen. Amen? Okay. <laughs> well, members of this church body, uh, do you receive the steward, or uh, Jay and April, as members, and we're talking with a couple of the kids uh, about baptism soon, and then when they come for baptism, they will be presented for membership, we pray. Do you receive this family in as members of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church? Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Let me pray for you. Father God, we, we pray for Jay and we pray for April. We pray for their whole family. Uh, they have been a blessing to us, and we have received them as they have received us, and they are adding to the worship here. The beauty of this community is uh, actually growing because of this Stewart family. So, Lord, I pray for your blessing in their home. I pray for your blessing in their own family devotions together. I pray for your blessing in Jay as he leads this family and, and April as she leads and conducts the home. Lord, uh, we just thank you for bringing them to us. And, with Lord, we just pray for your your provision for them. We pray for your direction as they continue to serve this body. And Lord, let this membership, this community of believers together, uh, be a place where you use this family for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, we thank you. And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. All right. So I know there are other families who were a part of the membership class. You were still thinking and praying about the proper time to officially present yourselves and that I've lift that with you. You, know, present, you let me know when you want to be presented to the church and we will join that as well. There's other families here who have not uh, come into a membership class yet. Uh, we'll be presenting some of that probably here in the next couple of weeks, probably start another group and uh, go through about six weeks or so of just talking together and praying together and looking at scripture. What does it say about membership and biblical understandings of that? And if you cannot come to the Sunday morning time, talk to me privately. I've done that with families before where we just sit and talk and you ask questions of the church and I try to answer them the best I can. We look in scripture together and uh, we become one body together. Amen. God is doing good things here and uh, it, it humbles me actually keeps me awake at night sometimes in fear of what the Lord is being presented here. Uh, there's something He's doing, and we must be obedient to it. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew now segues in this chapter from the temptation that the Pharisees and Sadducees presented to Jesus. They... The temptation they presented was they wanted him to do a great thing. They wanted him to do a very good thing. Call down a sign from heaven, Jesus. Do you remember that? They said, bring us a sign from heaven. Now, now we often consider temptation to be that which is leading us into bad things, like alcohol, smoking cigarettes, viewing images no one should view, stealing, Etc. I mean, that, that, that is what we normally think of temptation, correct? But Jesus met the temptation here from these religious elite. They wanted him to do a good thing. Call down a sign from heaven. Now, how many of us would, if we had the power to do so, would reject that? That's a good thing. But Jesus, in his authority, he asserts that the only sign necessary for this evil and adulterous generation would be Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. He refers to this as the sign of Jonah. The only sign that you'll get, the only sign that is necessary is my death, my burial, and my resurrection. No other sign is necessary. The cross and the resurrection are the only signs that we, the church, require. No other sign from heaven can compare, because that's it. Would you agree? And so now let us read here in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 5. This is a segue as Matthew takes us from the interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees now to interaction with his 12. And if you see, this is a repeated pattern in Matthew's gospel. Confrontation with evil arrogance of the elite sometimes and often follows with an interaction with Jesus and his disciples as Jesus tries to explain what just happened. That's what we're seeing today. So let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Let's read Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. 
When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's pray. Dear God Almighty, we pause at the reading of your word and we're humbled. Because as we read this warning from our Lord to his twelve, sometimes we may realize how much more like the Pharisees we are than the disciples of our Lord. We seek to add to the resurrection. We seek to add to your revelation of your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. We add to that for our own desires and our own comfort. And Lord, you are showing us here how wrong that is. And so God, I pray today that your warning would resonate in the hearts of all who hear this, that your warning would be graceful and leading us to the right way of thinking and the right proper attitude of faith. Warn us, Father, show us, lead us, have grace upon us. At this time, Lord, this is your moment. Please speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, this passage, it does show us a warning. It's a warning against adding to the work that Jesus did on the cross. The doctrine of the church that is actually showcased in this text is called the Solus Christus. The Solus Christus. It's one of the, it, it, that's Latin for in Christ alone, or another way that it's often written is in Christo Solo. Uh, It's the one of the five sola that summarized the Protestant Reformation's basic belief that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Solus Christus. That's what is shown here. So the, the, the temptation from the Pharisees and the Sadducees is all too common. It's a temptation that plagued the church from the very beginning. And I want to say, yes, it plagues the church even today. Jesus Christ has all authority to save. Christ alone is salvation for us. Yet, what do we do as fallen sinners? We add to that truth. We try to help the Lord. Or in our doubt, we demand a sign from heaven. If you are really speaking to me, Lord, if you're really calling me to salvation, Lord, show me something to tell me that it's you speaking and not something else. How many of us have been guilty of that? The Pharisees and Sadducees did this, and Jesus' warning is 12, not to fall into this dangerous way of thinking. It's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, Christ himself has all authority to save, but he need, but, but our, our temptation is, yes, Jesus has all authority to save me, but he needs my help. We, we have to assist him either by choosing him. He's waiting for us to love him. He's waiting for us to want him. Maybe I need to help Jesus a little bit here. Or maybe, Lord, I need, I need a little help here. Prove to me that Jesus saves. I doubt. Lord, show me how, somehow that this is true. I need help here. And we look for evidence outside of the gospel that is presented in those scriptures. We look for evidence outside of the final 
solution here, the final sign of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We want something more to ease our doubt. That's a a problem that Jesus is pointing out here. Because Jesus is who he says he is. And if we're seeking for any other sign or any other method or any other evidence of who Jesus is, we are falling into the same error that the Pharisees and Sadducees did here. Here is from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. I have obtained a wonderful new copy of that great faith and I'm loving it. It's a confession of faith that I love. And from the Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689, here's what it says. The Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtaining reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. That's a good way for us to think through this doctrine of solus Christus in Christ alone. There's a problem here with the desire to prove that Jesus has authority to save sinners. There's a problem here. It's called more thanism. That's, that's kind of not, not Mormonism, Daniel, as he's grinning. More thanism. Or, in this context, this more than is, is expressed through what the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted. They wanted what is called sensationalism. Show us a sensational sign from heaven, Jesus, to show us that we can trust you. That's more than what Jesus is going to do, much less is what it should do. More than ism, sensationalism. Sensationalism is seeking signs that prove beyond a doubt that God is working or that Jesus is working. Sensationalism is this seeking a sign that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is saving sinners. This is what we see as we, we, we want something big and glamorous and something we can't ignore. And so we look for something outside of the resurrection. And Jesus here is warning. The sensationalism ignores the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. That's what sensationalism does. It says that's not enough. We have to have something bigger. We have to have something more glamorous. We have to have something more exciting. Otherwise, we don't believe. Now, now the church here is given to Jesus Christ by God the Father, and we, the church, we depend solely upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing more is needed. Yet the Pharisees and the Sadducees demand more. But how many of us do the same? The teaching of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees that Jesus warns against is a religious sensationalism. They wanted a sign from heaven. From the overemphasis on hand washing, remember back at the beginning of chapter 15, the Pharisees were from Jerusalem, were demanding that the disciples wash their hands to prove how holy they were. All the way to chapter 16 here, now demanding a sign from heaven. Just like the old prophets did. Jesus, show us a great sign like Elijah did when he called down the fire from heaven. Jesus says, not necessary, because what I'm doing is bigger than that. (laughs) That's the issue here. You see, sensationalism always wants more than Jesus Christ. Sensationalism is inevitably this more thanism. This more thanism is rooted in the character of the church movements that are not satisfied with the sufficiency of the cross and the resurrection. If a church movement is not satisfied enough with the resurrection, the death of our Savior, the burial of his body, and the resurrection from the grave. If that's not enough for them, they're going to seek something more, and it's always going to go into a sensational show. And Jesus is warning us here, don't let that leaven 
of the Pharisees, that desire a sensational sign, poison the bread of life. You see what's happening? Simple faith in Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Lord will show itself true much more and much more diligently and faithfully than any other spectacular sign from heaven. Yet we want that, don't we? Let's look here at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. This is an important phrase, forgotten to bring bread. This little detail by Matthew indicates that the disciples, they once again find themselves ill-prepared to follow Jesus. How many of y'all have been on a road trip or gone somewhere and forgotten something important? How many of us take that reality of our fallen, crazy, chaotic world and apply that to our walk with the Lord. Oh, I've forgotten something. That's what the disciples are doing here. Remember that they had experienced two great feeding miracles in a short time span. Feeding of the 5,000 and feeding of the 4,000. Yet here they are once again, (laughs) lamenting and worrying that they forgot to bring bread for the journey. That's it. This is an important thing. It's, It's subtle, but it's important. From our perspective, these 12 should have learned a great lesson by now about Jesus' role as the king of the kingdom of heaven. But once again, Jesus is teaching them something profound here. Oh, you forgot bread? Is that a big deal? (laughs) Now, now Mark's account in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 15, he gives us a little bit more detail here. Mark's account speaks more directly to the failure of bringing bread, but also a little bit more of a, a, a detail here about the leaven that poisons the bread. Mark chapter 8, verse 14 says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Verse 15. And he being Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Mark's account adds not just the leaven of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but also the leaven of Herod. Now what's this mean? The disciples here... They, they listen to Jesus' words. They're, they're hearing his warning against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is a rebuke against them for failing to bring bread on the journey. That's what they're seeing. They're saying, okay, Jesus, are you rebuking us for forgetting our bread? Is that what you're saying? That's what they're hearing, but is that what Jesus says? It, it, it's a constant temptation of these 12 disciples to look at what they have rather than whom they have. How many of us in the church do the same thing? We are tempted to look at what we have or what we don't have versus whom we have. Who do we have? As his, as his people, as his church, we have Christ. And is that not enough? Yet we worry that we didn't bring enough to the table. This is the root of the leaven that Jesus warns us about here. It's, it's the leaven of, te- it's the temptation to depend upon ourselves for all that Jesus accomplishes for us. That's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and of Herod. Oh, Jesus is not quite enough. You need to add to that. What is your role in the salvation? What is your role in what Christ has done? That's the temptation to depend upon ourselves. And it's a dangerous temptation that Jesus is warning against here. We cannot come to salvation in Jesus Christ and add anything to what Christ has done. You see, this is the root of the problem. We are insufficient. Yet we worry that we're not contributing to the salvation that Jesus is bringing. You see the irony here? It's a contradiction. I'm, I'm insufficient, Jesus. Oh, but let me add something to what you're doing. What is, what kind of sense does that make? See what the disciples are dealing with here? I mean, we need Christ. We need him because we cannot accomplish what must be done for our salvation. We are sinners separated from God by our own sin and our own pride, which leads to evil. Yet somehow we think that we can add to what Christ has done. 
That's the, that's the poison that Jesus is warning about. Only the Son of God can save us. Only the Son of God can accomplish on the cross what must be done for us. It is impossible for us to do anything for ourselves when it comes to salvation in Jesus Christ, period. It's possible. Yet we struggle. This is part of the sin nature that we struggle with. We struggle to relinquish our control over our own salvation. We struggle to relinquish our control even on what is our role in the salvation process. The issue at play here in this struggle is not our insufficiency. That's obvious. We are insufficient. The problem is unbelief in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, solus Christus in Christ alone. The problem is we don't believe that. That's the issue at play here. Look here at verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then again, Mark's gospel adds the idea of Herod. Notice in this verse that Matthew speaks of the leaven, singular, not two leavens, plural, between the two religious parties. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two competing religious parties. What Jesus warns against is a common problem. It's a common doctrinal trend amongst these two to be unfaithful to God's law and to be unfaithful to the truth. The Pharisees, how did they fail? The Pharisees failed in the desire for super-spiritualism. The Pharisees wanted super-spiritualism to justify one's entry into the people of God. They were hyper-pious. Not just pious, they were above that. They were hyper-pious, okay? Uh, they were doctrinally serious fundamentalists. They were, let's just add, they were, they were acting like Catholicism. You must do this to be good. You must do this to be pious. You must do X, Y, and Z to be part of the church. That's the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, how did they fail? They failed in the desire for super secularism. Success at all costs to be holy in God's sight in whatever means in this world and in this culture, culture for them defined piety. You would say the Sadducees today, they would be the ones who would promote motivational seminars for Christians. How many of y'all see what I'm talking about? That's a big business. Let's go to a motivational seminar and learn how to be a better Christian. That would be what the Sadducees would promote. The Pharisees would promote a hyper-fundamentalist piety of wearing your hair a certain way and wearing your clothes a certain way and washing your hands a certain way. The Sadducees would be very spectacular in public seminars and let's learn how to be good people now in our culture. And that's the Sadducees. But that became their faith. That's the issue here. That's where they failed. The failure is genuinely the same for both. They are doctrinally unfaithful. So the leaven that Jesus warns against here is this allegory. He's using leaven as an allegory for unfaithful doctrine or unfaithful teaching. That's the leaven that poisons the bread. Notice in Mark's account in chapter 8, verse 15, that Jesus also warns against the leaven of Herod. Why? Because Herod was, Herod was not a religious teacher like the Pharisees or Sadducees, but he's added into the mix here. Herod was so unfaithful that he was, he was bringing in a very, a, a, a different religion of sorts. Here's what his problem was. Herod was not fully Jewish. He wasn't a pure Jew. He was half Jewish and half Gentile and he was mean and he was treacherous. He drew the people to his side in political means by alluring the, uh, the, the city and, and the people from Gentile and pagan traditions. He mixed Gentile and pagan traditions in with his politics to establish a kingdom for himself. In other words, he established a new religion of sorts. He established a new form of Judaism. And that's why Jesus includes him here in the and the leaven to avoid. The leaven that Jesus warns against here in all of these circumstances is tempting God himself by trusting in more than his grace. 
Herod tempted God by trusting in Herod's own political power, by establishing his own kingdom, by mixing Gentile and pagan traditions with Jewish traditions. Herod tempted God by trusting in more than God's grace. Pharisees likewise, they tempted God by trusting in something more than God's grace, which was legalism. And the Sadducees, they they tempted God by trusting in more than His grace, by demanding a secular way of defining holiness. How many of us are now in our brains starting to churn, thinking, whoa, wait a minute, am I guilty of some of this? Absolutely. Every one of us is guilty of this. The, 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 see, when we expect, when we expect to add to who Christ is and what he does, we are trusting in something more than God's grace. When we add to Christ, we are just as guilty as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We are actually adding their leaven to the bread. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the demand for legalized piety, uh, comforts in the secular world, secular comforts, and sensationalism. Uh, This is a demand of more than what we see, despite the fact that Jesus shows himself to be more than enough. The leaven of Herod was a political poison, false political harmony with religious motivation. He, He harmonized pagan religions with his politics, and even his politics became the religion. Ultimately, there will be no calling down of signs from heaven. Jesus is not going to fall into this. He's not going to call down signs from heaven to impress people because such signs, in order to impress people, actually degrade God and degrade his son, Jesus Christ. They even degrade the people of God because it's pointing them to something other than Christ. This demand to impress flies in the face of all that Jesus is teaching us. It flies in the face of all of his many miracles and the profound sermons that he had and his compassionate interaction with the broken and the poor in spirit. When we want sensationalism more than ism, we are actually insulting our Lord. Let's look here at verses 7 through 10. And they began to, and they being the twelve, and they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread, but Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Verse nine, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Look here, the 12 fear that Jesus is rebuking them. But in verse 8, Jesus charges them with having little faith. Or one translation could be that Jesus calls them, Oh, my hardly believers. You're not hardly believing yet, are you? That's another way to to translate this. Jesus' words here are both condemning, but they're also helpful. He condemns them for not believing even after witnessing and participating in two great feeding miracles. Have you not learned yet? I mean, Jesus emphasizes the takeaways here of baskets from these miracles. How many baskets have you gathered? Now, the point is not only that by remembering these miracles, the faith of these 12 should be strengthened. But the point is that the less the disciples had to feed the great crowds, the bigger the problem was before them and the bigger the miracle was and the bigger show of God, of Jesus' power, which should lead to a bigger faith and trust in him. Five loaves of bread for 5,000 people is less than seven loaves of bread for 4,000 people. 5,000 hungry people is a bigger problem than 4,000 hungry people. And what does Jesus do here? He does more than we could ever hope or imagine. That's the point. 
The point here is that there's a lesson. The lesson from Jesus here is not what do you bring to the table? What do you bring to the salvation I'm offering you? The lesson from Jesus here is a theology of grace. You deserve nothing, yet look at what I bring to you. Look at what I offer you. So here's the definition of grace. What we have, who we are, or who we are not is actually immaterial. What matters is that there is a miraculous Lord to whom we give what we are and what we have. Despite us being inadequate, despite us being unworthy, Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God against us and against our sin and against our inadequacy, adequacies. We do not deserve this grace. Yet it's made possible. Grace, this grace through Jesus Christ is poured out by the Lord who is and who does more than we deserve or are capable of doing. That's the point here, verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, have you not learned this lesson yet? Look at how many baskets you collected after you had nothing. Look at what I've done. Look here at verse 11. Jesus continues, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus is clarifying to the 12 here that his lesson is not about their lack of bread. It's not about you don't bring enough to the table. It's not that you don't bring enough to your salvation. What is it? The disciples are definitely inadequate here. But Jesus says, I did not speak about bread. In other words, I don't speak here about what you lack. He's talking about himself. Jesus is not speaking about bread in his warning as he's, you know, the mathematical presentation of there was 5,000 and five loaves of bread and 4,000 and seven loaves of bread. You could sit here and calculate numbers all day long. That's, that's the, what we call numerology and try to figure out some answer here through the numerology of the text. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Here's his point. He speaks about the elemental, meaning simple, this thing called faith. Yet this thing called faith is not merely elemental. It's simple, but then it's not so simple. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. Faith, have you ever heard this? Faith is grace's child. And doctrine or teaching is faith's midwife. How is faith birthed? Through proper teaching. What are these Pharisees and Sadducees teaching? Clearly not faithful teaching. So what you get birthed out of their teaching is not going to be faith. What you're going to get out of them is going to be something else. That's the point here. Faith is birthed by grace, the unmerited favor of our Lord, and doctrine or teaching gives birth and guides the birth of faith. Apart from right teaching, faith does not emerge, or proper faith, let's just clarify, the wrong midwife can actually lead to a great tragedy in a pregnant woman's labor. The right midwife leads to a glorious outcome of the pregnant woman's labor. So therefore, beautiful faith requires the appropriate midwife, the appropriate teaching. And these Pharisees and these Sadducees are not a good midwife for faith. Not at all. And Jesus is warning don't fall into their trap. The doctrine here, the teaching of the Pharisees or Sadducees actually is a spoiled leaven that destroys the bread that is life in Christ Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the bread of life. That's what John's gospel tells us in John chapter 6. If Jesus is the bread of life, any others, any other leaven, any other teaching outside of him comes in and destroys that wonderful birth of faith. It actually even destroys that eternal bread of life that leads to eternal life. Look here at verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware, to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12 actually defines what we're talking about here. It's the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the doctrine of these 
these false teachers, and even in uh, Mark's gospel, the teaching of Herod, this is a problem. This final verse concludes the teaching moment that Jesus is having here with his 12. They finally get it. Boom. Aha. How many of us have had that here lately with our Lord as we study his word? Aha. A light bulb goes off. Whoa. Now I get it. Verse 12 says, then they understood to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were worried. Remember back in chapter 15, the 12 were worried about how the Pharisees thought of our Lord. Wait a minute. Now the Pharisees aren't going to be happy about this, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, big deal. Let them not be happy, <laughs> right? We have already established here that this doctrine or teaching of these Jewish leaders, it's sensationalism or more than-ism. The Pharisees desired or demanded a super-spiritualism. The Sadducees desired and demanded a super-secularism. Their faith was more secular. And the Pharisees' faith was more pi- or more spiritual and more legalistic. Yet this passage here still speaks to us. Let's think about this. It speaks to us deeply. His warning here is for his church too, not just these 12. I want to close with just a few thoughts here about what religious movements today actually expect more than Jesus. These are just a few. This is just a short list to begin with, okay? I think we also need to consider secular worldviews. What secular worldviews are like the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What secular worldviews also act like the leaven that destroys the birth of the delicious bread of life? Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, remember, here's what Jesus' response. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, Jesus teaches us that seeking such things are the seeking of the sensational. Seeking of the sensational. Who can see God only through the dramatic? But God reveals himself rarely in the dramatic. I want to set, let that settle for a minute. God rarely reveals himself through the dramatic. Yes, the children of Israel, remember, they followed dramatic signs from heaven as God revealed himself to Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus, remember? There were signs that God revealed through Moses. There were signs that God revealed during the wilderness journey to Canaan, the promised land. There were wonderful, dramatic signs that God used in that time. But God reveals himself through the prophets. Remember, like Elijah, he calls down fire from heaven to consume the altar of the priest of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. So there is precedent in the Old Testament of God using dramatic signs. But Jesus here, what he emphasizes that this adulterous and evil generation deserves no greater sign from heaven than Jesus himself. Even the faithful in Christ will be satisfied with the greatest of all signs, the sign of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus himself. That's a sign that we are the genuine faithful. If the resurrection and the cross are enough for us, that is a good sign that we are the genuinely faithful. Yet if we're expecting something more, if we're expecting a, a, a more dramatic sign, that's a sign that we're not so faithful. False teachers claim to be prophets. And, and these false teachers take advantage of broken souls, take advantage of desperate people for their own gain. Simple-minded souls desire great signs and they will find them wherever they can find them. And the devil knows this and he will come in and he will, he will steer the simple-minded and the brokenhearted away from the truth of the gospel and they'll never know that they've been led astray. Here's some illegitimate seeking of signs that I see today. The sensationalism, right? The sensationalism of speaking in tongues or a desire for the spiritual gifts as evidence that I am now saved. I mean, that's that's an obvious one. Here's some other 
secular, I mean, spectacular things. Here's a thing called secular naturalism. You may not have heard of this before, but it's very subtle. Secular naturalism is this worldview, this idea that holds that there is nothing but natural elements, principles of any kind, but natural sciences. That's all there is. There's nothing more than the physical reality that we're in. And the only thing we can trust is the natural world. Now, this is a sensationalism that infects the church because it distracts the church from the miraculous reality of Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice, because that's a miracle. Secular naturalism says there's no such thing as the miracle. That's a problem. And this is an unseen truth that twists the, the truth of God. It, it says that that which is of God is not trustworthy because you cannot prove it. That's secular naturalism. So what that does, it leads the faithful Christian away from trusting in the miraculous. Oh, wait a minute. The miraculous is untrustworthy. So therefore, we must find evidence in this world. You see the problem there? It has infected the church. Here's another thing that's infected the church. Postmodern worldview. Postmodernism believes that there is no absolute truth. Now, this infects our churches a lot. We just don't realize it. You see, personal truth is determined by where you were born, where you were raised. Your culture determines your truth. That's what postmodernists think. It, it believes that truth is just used to suppress and oppress the less powerful. How does this leaven of postmodernism affect, infect the church? It, it does so by delegating biblical and theological discussion to the relativism of one's own personal opinion or one's own personal culture. We define the truth of the gospel through one's personal truth. That's postmodernism. That is a poisonous leaven that is destroying the church. In other words, no one can determine for certain what theological truth is. Only one's opinion or one's cultural bias will help us see what the truth is. Therefore, postmodernism says no one has the truth. That comes out in our Bible studies too, folks. When we're trying to be so polite and kind to one another in our Bible studies, oh, well, that's what they think. Who am I to challenge what they just said? The Bible speaks for itself. Yet what do we do? We're trying to be kind, but postmodernist thinking has infected us and we don't realize it. It's called relativism. Now, here's another thing. Progressive Christian deconstructionism. Now, I'm using big words here. Okay, this is what scholars call it, but let me define what it looks like. Progressive Christian deconstructionism. It's very popular right now in the up-and-coming generation of the 20s. Many believers who are into progressive Christianity, they are doing so without realizing. Here's progressive Christians tend to avoid absolutes. This is a, this is postmodernism even further. It's a poison in the church. They tend to avoid absolutes and are typically not united around creeds or belief statements. In fact, progressive thinking, here, there's a progressive thinker called John Pavlovitz, if you write that down, John Pavlovitz, here's what he wrote, that in progressive Christianity, there are no sacred cows. You ever heard that language? Because of this, it might be more helpful, they say, to look for certain signs or to look for certain moods and to look for certain attitudes toward God and the Bible when trying to see it. In other words, progressive Christians view the Bible as primarily a human book and emphasize personal conscience and personal practice rather than certainty and belief. They default to an individual interpretation of Scripture. This is what I think it means, so that must be true for me. That's progressive Christianity. They're also very open to redefining, reinterpreting, or even rejecting essential doctrines of the faith like the virgin birth, the deed of Jesus, and this bodily resurrection. Now, here's how this works. In progressive Christian deconstructionism, you are encouraged to question and doubt all that you have been taught as true. You deconstruct 
what apparently you have been told as a lie so that you can then reconstruct into your own personal understanding of the gospel. It's out there, folks. It's in the younger generation coming up. It's probably within your thinking and you don't realize it. Let's challenge and deconstruct what I've always been told to be true so that I can reconstruct and rebuild my own belief system. This is a leaven that poisons the church. It's a leaven of secular thinking that is poisoning the church. Lastly, Christian nationalism. It's the belief that America, that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Now, I'm not here to say that we should not be patriotic. Let's love our country. This weekend, we are remembering those who have died so that we can be free, so that we can be here this morning without fear. Let's do that. But here's the problem. When Christian nationalism replaces the gospel and we worship the United States of America, we have now replaced Christ with something else. That's the issue here. Christians, here's what Christian nationalism say. Christianity should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. I'm saying we should have a voice in the public square, but we're a voice in the public square. Guess what? In the land of freedom, there's also other voices allowed in the public square. Christianity is true, but if we squelch other voices, what are we saying to them? We don't trust that the Lord is going to bring you to Himself through the truth that we speak. There's faith there. So, here's the problem. Christian nationalism takes the name of Christ and replaces it with a worldly political agenda and adds the name of Jesus Christ to it, proclaiming that it's a program, that it's a political program. So politics now becomes the God. But here's the issue with that. Let's go a little bit further. In Christian nationalism, now the question is raised, who then is the true believer? We start wagging our fingers at people, you don't believe like me, so you must not be Christian. Dangerous. Now we start saying who is the outcast and who is allowed in? Who is the true believer? Who's the non-believer? Christian nationalism takes the open arms of Jesus Christ and we actually become more pharisaical in saying you have to say a certain thing and be a certain way in order to be one of us. It's a dangerous poison in the bread of life. So let's close with this. The lesson for us today, the lesson for the church is to stop giving up seeking of signs. I think that's what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 16. We're to give up the sensationalism. We're to give up man-made expectations of what or who is truly religious and who is not. We are not to demand signs to prove Christ. We are to have faith in Christ alone, period. And guess what? If Christ, if Jesus is working on someone else who is different than you, guess what? Hallelujah, the Holy Spirit is working on someone else who is different than you. Wonderful, it ain't up to you. Trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, not just for your own personal salvation, but also for the salvation of others. In Christ alone, we have our sign on the cross and we have our sign in the resurrection. And the lesson here from Jesus in Matthew 16 is echoed in his warning here to the 12 disciples. He repeats this, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He repeats it twice in this text. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My caution to us all is beware of any teaching or doctrine that is added to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Period. I don't care if it is 
mysticism. I don't care if it's Christian nationalism. I don't care if it's postmodernism. Whatever it is that we add to the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are guilty of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's be careful. Let's point people to the cross. Let's not point them to anything else. Now look here at the end of actually Matthew 16, verse 4. At the end of verse 4, he says, No sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I want to close with that thought. Sometimes this is what the church must do when sensationalism is before us. When there is a sensationalist push, anything more than Christ, and we are threatened and we are bullied and we are prodded and we are pushed to embrace the sensationalism, anything more than Christ, I think sometimes we're doing what Jesus says, we leave them and we depart from them. In other words, the warning from our Lord is, don't get sucked into it. If it is something more than the gospel, if it is something more than the cross, I say do what Jesus did. He departs from them, He leaves them. As we close today, here's what I want us all to be pondering. What is it that we add to the faith? What is it that we add to this Jesus that loves us so much? What are we adding to? A lot of it, a lot of times we may be adding to because we're insecure. I don't really trust. Does Jesus really love me? I don't know. Maybe if I think this or I do this or if I go to this conference, Jesus will love me. If I listen to this Bible teacher, maybe Jesus will love me. If I just follow this or that or the other thing, maybe Jesus will love me. A lot of it is insecurity. In in an age of superstar Christianity, you know what I mean when I say that? We are, we are in a time of human history where we have more access to media, and things than ever before. And we have superstar Christians. We've always had superstar Christians. You know, the apostle Paul talks about it in the, in the, in his epistles. Uh, I'm thankful that I am not Apollos. <laughs> Remember? We had superstar Christianity even then. How many of us have fallen into the trap of saying, well, brother so and so on YouTube or brother so and so on TV or brother so and so on the radio says this or sister so and so at her conference last week said this. How many of us add to Christ? We're looking for the sensational. We're looking for the show instead of the simplicity of faith. I want to close with that thought. And let's close in prayer. Father God Almighty, we thank you, Lord, for your word. The words of your son remind us to be cautious and to beware of anything that adds to anything more than him and his death for us, his resurrection for us. There is anything that we add to that, Lord, is not of you. But God, in our inadequacies, in our insecurities, we are tempted to try to help Jesus and we fail. God, I pray that you would protect every mind in this church, every family in this church from anything that is sensational in the faith. Sensational apart from the wonderful, miraculous resurrection, anything other than that is something that is fake and is a fraud and is distracting and tempting and draws us away from genuine faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would protect every mind here because we are a culture that wants to be entertained. We are a culture that needs to be to be excited And sometimes the greatest truth that comes is so simple. It does not excite as much as the secular world excites, but oh, it is so much greater. 
I pray, God, that you would change our thought, our thinking. You would change our thought patterns to witness and to see how much more miraculous and how much more sensational Jesus Christ is as he comes out of that grave than anything else that can come across our eyes through media, through internet, through whatever, through podcasts, whatever. Anything that is sensational is something to be cautioned against. Lord, your son, Jesus Christ, is more beautiful and more exciting and more wonderful than anything else that we could make up or create. And for that, Lord, I thank you. And thank you for showing us that. And thank you for teaching us that. And I pray, God, that you would go with us as we leave here and stir up in us an excitement for the faith that is necessary in Jesus Christ. Stir up within us an excitement and a joy that is more powerful than any of the secular temptations that come our way. Cause us to depend only on Jesus Christ and nothing more. I leave all of us in your protective hands, Lord. I pray as we leave here that you would go with us and you would guard us and keep us close to your faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.